The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Welcome back to the Unfiltered Podcast. In today's episode, Brooke White, a psychologist, will answer these five questions from our community. One. I have read that one of the reasons that narcissists are able to move on so quickly is because they don't get attached to people the same way that emotionally safe people do. If that is the case, why do they seek out a relationship if they don't have any intention of making it last? 2. It is so clear that my narcissistic mother is wrong. Everyone sees it, even if they don't want to admit it. What makes it impossible for their victims to confront them about their behavior? Why can't they take responsibility for their actions? 3. As an empath, I feel like I always want to understand people and see good in others. I feel like this trait of mine is being used against me by the narcissist in my life because she makes me feel so guilty and selfish for expressing my thoughts and feelings. Her favorite line is, If you are going to walk around pretending to be an empath, maybe start with accepting me for who I am and not trying to control me so much. How can I overcome this? 4. How can trauma cause people to develop narcissistic traits? I have heard that survivors have to be careful when healing from narcissistic abuse because the trauma can cause us to become narcissistic. Can you please explain this to me? 5. Why do narcissistic relationships last for so long? I have stayed friends with a narcissist for 12 years. My sister has a narcissistic boyfriend of 7 years. I have a friend who has stayed close with her narcissistic brother for almost 40 years. We want to drop these relationships, but we can't. Generally speaking, why do you think that is? Hi Brooke, thank you for joining me today. It's nice to have you in this podcast episode. Thank you for asking me, I'm happy to be here. That's nice to hear. So uh, let's get started with the questions right away. And the first one is, I have read that one of the reasons that narcissists are able to move on so quickly is because they don't get attached to people the same way that emotionally safe people do. If that's the case, why do they seek out a relationship if they don't have any intention of making it last? Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting question. Um, I think the first thing I'll just say is to keep in mind that these um, personality characteristics and these relationship dynamics are really complex. And so it isn't as simplistic as wanting to be in a relationship for longevity or because I want it to last. There are really different motivating factors for a narcissistic individual um, that serve to maintain their defenses um, around being in control, being important, being special, um, and essentially protecting themselves from what is often a wound deep inside of them of shame and alienation and inadequacy. So their motivation is to stay away from the wound and maintain their sense of self. Their motivation isn't necessarily the things we think of when we think of a healthy relationship, the things that most people are looking for. 
um, I think that's the most succinct way I could ask that answer that question. Yeah, thank you. And that's a really great point because, uh, well, of course, uh, okay, follow up question first. How often do you think that a person with either full blown NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, or just very, very strong uh, narcissistic traits often, uh, how often it's the case that they could have some traits of, let's say, uh, antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy. And yeah. I'm asking this because uh, when people think about why do they seek relationships if they are not if they don't want to maintain them and many people are like well I think that the narcissist in my life is just staying with me because they want to abuse me but your answer was that they want to protect their wound but if a narcissist has like let's say traits from psycho psychopathy and like sociopath would there be some kind of even like a sadistic component there as well? Why do they stay in these yeah. relationships? Like, uh, I don't know, was this too confusing question, but could you no, say something? No, I don't think so. But I think it would be helpful to maybe pull apart some of the terms that you're using <laughs> yeah. so we understand what's what. Um, psychopathy is incredibly rare. Um, it's, it's a, you know, a pretty, pretty um, particular criteria of of um of traits and behaviors that is not that commonly seen and again that's a word that we hear more often i think than actually exists in the population um and psychopathy is different than antisocial personality disorder those are two distinct disorders um i don't know the statistics around what percentage of narcissistic narcissistic personality disorder having individuals also deal with psychopathy. I'm not familiar with any, um, any studies that, that kind of give that epidemiological data. Um, but I think while I mentioned the wound being a piece of the puzzle, that's probably not consciously what the, per what the person that deals with MPD is thinking about or working from. It's a, you know, that is something that they, they tend to want to stay pretty far away from looking at. So, um, you know, so they're not going to be consciously thinking, I'm going to stay in this to sort of, and stay in it in this way, this unhealthy, sometimes toxic way in order to protect my wound. That's not typically a thought process they're going to be having, right? But one theory of where NPD develops, which I should say we don't know exactly why uh, fundamentally people develop narcissistic personality disorder, we believe it's likely a combination of genetics neurobiology and upbringing. Um, but there is often um, a lot of early difficulty in how they were parented and as well as a predisposition. And so um, one theory of what the characteristics of narcissistic personality develop, uh, disorder are about is to a defense mechanism to protect against the consequences of certain types of maltreatment in childhood. Of course, we should just note that on the other side of the spectrum, another parenting style that can be shown to contribute to this is when a child is idealized. So that's, you know, that's a, another route perhaps to get there. I think there's still a lot of research to be done to really deeply understand all of these factors and how they combine and how it manifests so differently in different people. Um, 
But as for how they come into a relationship, so you were, I just want to make sure I understand the question correctly. So you're wondering if someone has psychopathic tendencies or antisocial tendencies in addition to narcissism, how does that then change how they enter into the relationship? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, sim simply saying that it will make it more complex for sure. You know, a, a psychopathic um, presentation has no remorse, no feeling at all for the other person. Oftentimes, um, violent behaviors are a part of the picture. So that's a pretty um, concerning place for someone to find themselves if there is that kind of thing going on. Um, and again, just to stress, most people, um, I don't, again, don't know the real number, but I would say that most people dealing with narcissistic personality disorder would not meet criteria for psychopathy. Mm -mm. But what about, isn't psychopathy the same as like NPD that there aren't many, many, maybe the full blown NPD. So it's the same that, is it the same that, well, somebody could just have the traits or some of the traits, but not meet the full criteria to have. Yeah, I or... tend, I tend to Sure. I tend to look at most things in um, terms of psychology diagnostics as being on a spectrum. And I think uh, the field is moving slowly <laughs> towards, see, I think a lot of people in the field look at it that way, right? These are not necessarily like distinctly dichotomous <laughs> um, categories where it's like you have this or you do not. There is a threshold that one needs to meet to get an actual diagnosis but certainly with with many if not most mental health disorders one can have um some symptoms or be lower on the spectrum of of anything so i think that would probably be true like you could have some some behaviors let's say that present maybe earlier in life and are concerning and raise red flags but it if, if someone were to get good treatment and, um, and if it, you know, if it wasn't deeply rooted in the neurobiology and the genetics in a way that it's going to play out at however it's going to, um, then they may not develop, you know, a full blown mental health disorder. So, um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Thank you. Yes. Uh, then let's move on to the second question. It, it is so clear that my narcissistic mother is wrong. Everyone sees it, even if they don't want to admit it. What makes it impossible for their victims to confront them about their behavior? Why can't they take responsibility for their, for their actions? Yeah. Yeah. I think fundamentally an individual with narcissistic personality disorder is often often lacking the ability to take responsibility for their actions and its effects on others. So that is actually um, part of the diagnostic picture in and of itself. So if someone has that, that that's one of the things they're probably going to be lacking. Um, and again, there may not be a real conscious awareness or a willingness to admit that they're lacking those things. So for example, even when it comes to getting mental health treatment for NPD, many individuals will shy away from it. They don't want to look at the parts within themselves that might be flawed or problematic, right? And so 
when the writer asks, why can't they take responsibility? Or there was a, another question. Can you just repeat it before? Yeah, it was, what makes it impossible for their victims to confront confront them about their ah, behavior? Yeah, right. and Yeah. Right. So I, I think, um, you know, it, it kind of makes me think about that um, question of why didn't they just leave? Right. That that people can say so often, like, why didn't they just walk away? Why? Why can't we just confront? Right. Um, there's so many things at play that make that difficult. One, it's probably not going to go very well if they <laughs> confront this person and they probably have experience about that. Right. So when you're in a dynamic with an individual like that, you know, for people who choose to stay in that relationship, they're constantly navigating the potential for rage and and an outburst, um, and also the desire to get some of the charming, kind of uh, pleasing characteristics to return. And it's there's a risk in, in confronting somebody directly around some of this stuff. You know, if you're in a healthy relationship, we could envision how that dialogue could happen openly and you could provide feedback. This is how it makes me feel. But if somebody is lacking empathy, if somebody thinks their needs are of utmost importance, if somebody feels like manipulation and control are how they can maintain their own sense of being okay in the world, um, they're not going to be able to engage in that kind of a dialogue. And most people who are in relationships with people who have MPD understand that from learning experience. Um, the other thing is there's these other complicating factors such as if there's a trauma bond, um, you know, if there's a reason that, uh, let's say the person in the victim position in the relationship um, feels as though their sense of self-worth is dependent upon this same person who's abusing them, right? Or um, they're just holding on to this hope that the honeymoon phase will return and that that was really who they are and that they want to be um, empathic, which is what's lacking on the other side and not maybe be too quick to judge or too quick to walk away. But here's the other problem. There's some, there's some neurochemical issues going on as well because um, often in this kind of relationship, there is intermittent reinforcement, which is the most um, robust way to train up a behavior. So if an individual is staying in a relationship like this, they're going to be intermittently reinforced. And that makes their um, connection to stay in even stronger. The other thing that's really complicated is that the part of the brain that where we feel love is also the part of the brain where we feel the effects of cocaine. And so dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter that is connected with um, our pleasure centers, is involved in this. And if you add cortisol and adrenaline and some of the other, um, other things that come into play when there's fear, when there's danger, when there's aggression, when there's threat, that can actually create what some theorize is a, an addictive process in the brain. So there are things happening that aren't... Um, an individual's fault, but may play a role in why they can't break free. Thank you. And do you think that narcissists' inability to take responsibility for their actions is related to their 
their wound that you uh, mentioned in the first question that even though are even though they are not conscious about their wound but they still protected it with their defense mechanisms like denial or taking not taking responsibility is that the case why they don't take responsibility responsibility for anything i think it's related i definitely think that's related right like it's um you know if you have a sense of fragility then one you need how i want to say it the other way you need some sense of um of a sturdy self-concept to be able to look inward and examine faults and flaws right to not crumble under either feedback from the other or self-examination of what isn't working but there is also um i think often an inability to see one's effects on others um, you know, if you're dealing with narcissistic personality disorder, you're not feeling other people's feelings in the same way. There's a real separateness, I think, of, um, you know, versus somebody who's really empathic and somebody who feels what others are feeling deeply and, and then has concern and behaviors that fall in line with that. Um, there's a lack of that in a, mm. in a situation where MPD is present. And so... I don't think it's one thing that leads them to not be able to take responsibility. Um, if we were to look back at kind of the two general theories of parenting that contribute, if you're raised in a household in which you have been told you are special, you are perfect, nobody's as good as you, right? Then, and your personality is developing all through your childhood in this environment, and then you get out into the world and the world does not treat you that way, um, you know, there can be a real um, shock. And I think a shoring up of those strategies to get back to that idealized place. Um, and if it's if it's more of the, um, the version in which there was maltreatment and a sort of tearing down of the self-concept during the years where we're looking to build it up and there's a fragility there, then I would say a lot of the behaviors might be motivated by trying to overcome that, mm. right? And trying to maintain a sense of, um, it's not quite worth, but like importance and attention and, um, and maybe an overcompensation for what was lacking mm. in the harmful or neglectful childhood experience. Okay. Thank you. Makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Uh, then the third question. As an empath, I feel like I always want to understand people and see good in others. I feel like this trait of mine is being used against me by the narcissist in my life because she makes me feel so guilty slash selfish for expressing my thoughts and feelings. Her favorite line is, if you are going to walk around pretending to be an empath, maybe start with accepting me for who I am and not trying to control me so much. How can I overcome this? Yeah. Yeah, this is such a good question because I think when there is someone with narcissistic tendencies and someone who's very empathic and always concerned about how someone else feels, that can be a really tricky combination. And um, the narcissistic tendencies can play on that dimension of the other person's personality um, or, or their, their way that they show up emotionally in relationships. It's really complicated. You know, relationships um, are, are 
dynamic and they have a lot of things going on at any given time, right? So while empathy is essential, I would say, to having a healthy relationship, we also need to be able to examine um, through a different lens of objectivity of if the behaviors that are happening are healthy, are safe, are respectful. And you can have empathy for somebody's difficulties while holding boundaries and ensuring your own safety. And I think that that's where this gets really tricky is that oftentimes, not always by any means, there's so much variation in all of this, I just want to say. But I think sometimes if somebody is um, very empathic and that's kind of their mode most of the time, um, they may have a higher risk of not being able to say, this is not okay. And I recognize you are a person who has feelings too, and it's still not okay. And these are my boundaries because I also have empathy for myself. And I also need to know that there's like a baseline requirement if people are going to have close proximity to me. Um, and so I would say one is that they're not mutually exclusive. You can have empathy and have boundaries. And you want to include the self-empathy in there. So if there's imbalance where it's all empathy for the other and no self-compassion and kind of an examination of how does this actually feel to me, those are places to, to do some examination and, and some work. Um, because of the manipulation piece and the tendency towards gaslighting, if somebody is really empathic, that gives like a wide open route for a narcissistic, narcissistic individual to take advantage of that aspect, right? So if they feel like they're starting to lose some control, let's say, or the person is putting up boundaries and then it, it might um, create anger, right? Or, or um, strengthening of certain approaches to try to get that person to come back into the position of reinforcing the narcissistic individual's importance and value and um, specialness. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a really tricky dynamic. And I think in situations where people are feeling like the empathy um, invites in, not fault, let me be so clear. It's, it doesn't matter how empathic someone is, it's still not their fault if they're being treated poorly, but it might be important to work with a professional to understand how to get some balance with that and, and to examine if the empathy in any way is leading them to not protect themselves in places where they deserve to protect themselves. Mm, thank you. And now that I'm reading this, uh, the line, the uh, person who sent this question, they said her favorite line is, if you are going to walk around pretending to be an empath, maybe start with accepting me for who I am and not mm -hmm. trying to control me so much. That is actually pretty kind of good advice in a way that if you just, you kind of have to radically accept that if you are dealing with a narcissist, you have to accept that they either have the NPD or they have very high narcissistic traits that make the relationship very complex and hard to manage. and mm -hmm it's never going to work to control anyone. It, it's, it can be a healthy relationship. You can control in, in a healthy relationship either. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think uh, your point to uh, when you said, I, I really like the point that you said that have also the empathy towards yourself and examine that do you have that for yourself or are you always 
finding a way to um, like put others others and others feelings first so that's 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 really great so it's kind of you have to yeah take a closer look at your own boundaries and yeah yeah and i i think to your point which is a really um really interesting and good observation like that sentence that quote of what this individual says to her um both has a flavor of kind of manipulation and gaslighting to me, but you're right. It also has wisdom because if we can see an individual for who they really are and not have sort of false hopes that they're someday going to just not be who they are without any data, because people, generally speaking, there is room for people to change. There is treatment that can be useful. So I don't want to make it seem like, you know, once somebody is a certain way in their life, that is always how they will be. However, you want to look for real data that there's change. And if the person is showing you the same kind of behaviors over and over again, we have to believe who they are showing us they are. And we have to make decisions based on that reality. Um, and that that does not make somebody unkind to say it's not okay to treat me like that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I feel like people in narcissistic relationships, they often, they see the potential that or they see the possibilities. And that is, though, see, seeing the potential, potential is often because the start of the relationship often was like, pretty good. And they felt pretty good. So yeah, that's yeah. And then you add in the piece I was mentioning before about intermittent reinforcement, Mm. where there are occasional carrots dangled again. And um, intermittent reinforcement is like gambling. Sometimes it works. (laughs) And so you know, there are some people who are just going to keep hedging their bets to to get the big win. And with an individual like this, that never that never comes. And the big win here would be a healthy relationship, yeah. healthy behaviors. Yeah. So just to sum up uh, when this person is asking, how can I overcome this? Am I understanding correctly that you, you say that take a closer look that if you have empathy towards yourself as well, and then understand that uh, like being empathic can coexist with having still strong boundaries. And, and um, is there anything else that you would there. Yeah, you know, I would just say to that individual, like, if this is something that they've really tried to shift, and they know they need to, um, to reach out for professional support, because, um, you you know, to really examine um, what is at play for them. And sometimes it can be additional mental health concerns, like anxiety, or their own trauma, um, that might be coming into play, um, that to, to not be afraid to reach out for support to really understand all of these things and address them if if needed. Um, and sometimes it's it's a skill deficit. Like we are not all taught in our families or in our society how to set boundaries, you know? And I think um, it, it can happen similarly across the, the gender spectrum, but I would say historically how women have been... Um, treated on many levels of, of society across history has has um, led to some some systems that discount the need for boundary setting for women. 
you know, um, that's just one sort of subset, but boundaries are important for all people and all people can struggle setting them. So learning how to do that, learning how to recognize when you need to do that is really important. And then having practice, putting it into place because it can feel scary for somebody who might have a misconception that that's mean. And I, I've heard that sometimes for people, they feel so bad saying no or like, cause then they wonder, well, what am I bringing to this? And I think, um, clarifying that that is, that's actually not mean. It's a healthy thing to do and all relationships need boundaries, but really healthy ones don't often need to state what they are because both people just know and mutually respect them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, let's go to the fourth question. Okay. How can trauma cause people to develop narcissistic traits? I have heard that survivors have to be careful when healing from narcissistic abuse because the trauma can cause us to become narcissistic. Can you please explain this to me? Yeah, so again, just referring back to sort of the likelihood that genetics, neurobiology and upbringing can all contribute um, to this. Um, I want to speak just a moment generally about trauma before we dive into what that means for developing NPD or potentially developing it. You know, most um, people will experience a traumatic event at some point in their lifetime. But the current numbers of people who actually develop PTSD are actually pretty small. It's about 10% for women, about 5% for men, about 7.5% if you combine the two. And then, of course, there are people who don't meet criteria for PTSD but have residue and symptoms from their traumatic experiences. And we don't actually know exactly why it is that some people will have trauma and experience PTSD and others will not. And even more specifically, that some will have what many might perceive to be um, a milder trauma um, and develop really strong PTSD. And somebody may have had what many would experience as severe trauma and not develop PTSD. So we don't understand all the reasons why that is. And likely some brains are more um, predisposed. Um, and we're starting to scratch the surface. And we're also starting to understand that the age, gender, and type of abuse all combine to impact different parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of wild. So like what age you are, what gender, and what type of abuse has implications on what part of the brain was impacted. And I'm talking about childhood. Mm, okay, one one question. You say type of abuse. Do you mean like emotional, physical? Mm-hmm. Okay. Sexual. Yep, exactly. Uh, when we get better, that, that research is newer. When we get better and deeper into understanding it, it's really going to help with prevention and better treatment because we will be able to really tailor to like, okay, we know these brain parts are involved more in this particular combination of factors than in this one. So we want to tailor our treatments and our support um, in that way. So now we can kind of bring it to um, narcissistic personality disorder. And I want to just say that while many people with NPD have experienced trauma in their life, it's not true to say that most people with trauma will experience NPD. So I want to make that really clear. It's, it's, 
fairly rare. So I think the numbers for narcissistic personality disorder, I mean, they vary if you look at different studies, but I think, you know, close to 5% of women and just under 8% of men. So men are more likely to develop narcissistic personality disorder, whereas women are, are more predisposed to PTSD um, and to borderline personality disorder as well. So, um, so just wanting to kind of ground the conversation in the fact that um, being aware to the point of this, uh, this person's question of the possibility that those things can develop can help to inform what they want to work for, work with in treatment to try to prevent, try to understand how did this affect me? What is the impact? How do I feel in relationships? What is a healthy relationship? So skill building and sort of, but also a lot of understanding of, of the impact of what they've gone through. Um, and there are very good treatments that can help disrupt that kind of development. And the earlier that we can intervene, I would say, the better, because narcissistic personality disorder typically presents in early adulthood. In fact, some stages of normal, quote, typical um, childhood development involve narcissistic traits, right? And it's not pathology. It's like what we sort of expect of children at that point. Um, so there is room to, to impact um, how that goes. And hopefully that will involve a disruption of the maltreatment or a disruption of whatever um, abuse is happening in the earlier years. So I would just say, if you're somebody who's had trauma and you're concerned about this, that the best thing you can do for yourself is to seek help and really have a professional help you deeply examine what you've gone through and to do whatever healing work um, is important there, how it's manifesting in consequence within you and do any work that would be helpful there and to just have skill building around how to move forward in really healthy relationships, which would involve boundaries and all those things we talked about earlier. Thank you. Um, yeah, let's go. That was a very comprehensive answer. I was first going to think, do I have follow-up question? But then I was like, no, <laughs> that was great. Thank you so much. So uh, then the number five, why do narcissistic relationships last for so long? I have stayed friends with a narcissist for 12 years. My sister has a narcissistic boyfriend of seven years. I have a friend who has stayed close with her narcissistic brother for almost 40 years. We want to drop these relationships, but we can't. Generally speaking, why do you think that is? Yeah, it's, I think it's common what she's remarking, she or he is remarking on. It's common um, and complex. <laughs> so we covered some of it already, which is there can be um, things at play such as neurobiological, um, perhaps addictive processes, right? So that's one thing. We have the intermittent reinforcement piece. That's another thing. We have the fact that for many of these individuals, their self-esteem, self-worth, autonomy, self-efficacy has been eroded in this relationship. And those things are really important to stepping away, right? You have to know you deserve it. You have to know there's more out there for you. And if you have somebody who's in a power position in the relationship who is telling you um, negative things about yourself, blaming you for things that go wrong, saying this is all your fault, having a lot of gaslighting behavior, it can really start to erode the individual's perception of what's going on. 
And, um, and then you add that empathic piece, it can make them feel bad for how they are in the relationship. And so you can get this guilt component. The other thing that I would say is important to understand, especially if there's a family member, is that it's really hard to walk away from family. Um, it's hard to walk away from a romantic relationship like this too, but if you add children, right, or if you're talking about a sibling or your own parent, there is sometimes a risk of losing others who are deeply, deeply in this dynamic with that individual and are unlikely to stand up to them, unlikely to set the boundary, and in some cases rely on, on in this case, let's say the person asking this question, they may rely on that person to maintain the status quo, right? To not make them have to change either. Um, and, you know, in family systems, you can have decades of this kind of relating to each other. And um, and the, the guilt or blame is misplaced often on the healthier ones who are willing to see that there's a problem. Like a lot of reactivity can come forth if somebody is bringing this up as a problem. And so, um, as I mentioned before, confronting this doesn't often go well. So the person has to be willing to lose that individual and know they do not need that person's permission to walk away or approval to walk away, that they need their own. And they need a support system that is able to say, yeah, you deserve better. We will help you stay away. And in time, it gets easier, but it's really, really hard at first. And there are sometimes loving feelings there. In the case of a child of a narcissistic parent, there's that biological attachment there. Like every child wants their parent to show up for them in the natural ways that we need, right? Which initially are based on survival. So it's a really difficult, um, it's a really difficult relationship to choose to walk away from. But I have seen many people do it successfully. I have seen um, many people work through the pain of that and heal. So it's important to just know there are pathways forward. Um, and there are ways to healthily grieve the loss of that parent or that sibling or that romantic partner, the good parts that you lost out on, or also the idealized view of who they might have been one day. Yeah, that was really great answer. And I want to just uh, add or uh, I think it was a little bit already, but say it more clearly that you mentioned that uh, one of the reasons why uh, people stay in these relationships is because their self-esteem is low or their self sense of self has been eroded a lot in that relationship and like it's very very common that while while you are in this in this narcissistic relationship or uh in a, in a toxic relationship that you develop yourself like like you develop a depression or yeah. uh, some kind of other uh, mental health mm -hmm. uh issue that makes things even more harder and then of Absolutely. course yeah Absolutely. like then you have that to deal with like if you're depressed yeah. like you don't yeah. really see the value in trying yeah. to like, make things better for yourself like you are helpless in that 
uh, in that way. And uh, then, of course, the very, very uh, unfortunately, very common like financial abuse. You mentioned you mentioned yeah. like relying on family members, but especially also in romantic relationships. Like, but yeah, like for example, I could I I could see. Uh, it's very very common to like if you have a narcissistic parent let's say you are uh like a like in your early 20s and you don't yet have for example financial stability you could rely still on your parent or um, that's why you don't want to or it's more scary to walk away and yeah there are so so many factors you already brought up so many but yeah yeah and and um I just have deep compassion for individuals in that position. It is not an easy thing to do, even though I kind of like bullet pointed kind of pieces of how one might start to do that. It's a complex process. It's not fast. Um, There's a lot of pain and grief in it, a lot of shifting narratives of the other person, of oneself, a lot of treating any other issues that are getting in the way or keeping somebody stuck. Um, it takes a lot of work, but I do think that there is hope. And that's something I would want people to know. There is hope and it can be much better. I agree with that. And I think that is a very, uh, this is a positive way to end this podcast because we had some really great questions and great answers in today's podcast. So I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode and thank you, Brooke, so much for coming to this episode and answering all these questions. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure.